This is The Rounds Table. Hello everyone, welcome back to The Rounds Table. I am Chris Giuliano, one of the rotating hosts. I'm an internal medicine clinical pharmacist, and today we have a guest host with us, Sean McConaughey. Sean is also an internal medicine clinical pharmacist. Hi Chris, thanks for having me on. Today our episode is going to be called there is no comparison. And the reason why is because both studies lack comparator arms. We chose these studies because they were practice-changing studies that have been recently published in major journals, despite the lack of a comparison arms. The first article that we're going to review is looking at periprocedural bridging with heparin in patients that had a history of VTE or blood clots. And the second article is going to look at the reversal of anticoagulation with indexinate alpha. So let's just go ahead and jump right into our first article. This was published by Baumgartner and colleagues in October in the American Journal of Medicine. The title of this article was called Periprocedural Bridging in Patients with VTE, a Systematic Review. So what is the main message for this article? So this review of 28 cohort studies that actually encompassed 6,900 different patient procedures found the incidence of recurrent VTE with bridging was 0.7%. And so these patients were both on heparin, and the warfarin was kind of wearing off while the heparin was on board. And then the incidence without bridging, so just stopping the warfarin before the procedure and letting that wear off prior, was 0.5%. So 0.7 incidence with bridging, and then 0.5% without bridging. Now, the incidence of bleeding with bridging was 3.9% versus 0.4% without. Now, if you are listening closely, I'm actually only talking about the incidence rates. The authors chose not to statistically compare these two different groups to each other because there was a lot of heterogeneity in the results. And I agree with the authors because there was a lot of potential for biases with the studies that they combined together. So instead of doing what we call a meta-analysis or a quantitative systematic review, the authors performed a qualitative systematic review. And that's because the studies that were included in this were very different from each other. And we're gonna talk more about this as we dig deeper into the study. So why did you choose this article from a personal perspective and why might it be important for the listeners to know about? So when I first started working as a hospital pharmacist, the use of bridging was extremely common, not just for patients with clots or VTE, but also in patients with AFib. Now over time and with the publication of a study called the Bridge Study, which found no benefit to the prevention of clots in lower any intermediate risk AFib patients, the use of bridging in this population has dropped significantly, but we still commonly bridge patients that have a history of VTE. And so as I talk about bridging, it's always talking about using heparin in combination with warfarin in this study. 
and that and that warfarin is being held so that it wears off prior to the procedure. So as I said, we are still commonly bridging patients with the history of VTE. So I was excited to read this study in more detail and critically evaluate this to see if it would change our current practice. So I think you already mentioned it briefly, but what was the design of the chosen study? So this was a qualitative systematic review, not a meta-analysis. And they looked at patients receiving either heparin or low molecular weight heparin for a procedure while warfarin was being held. Okay, and what kind of patients were included in the study? So actually, um, instead of patients, it was studies that were included in this study. <laughs> and they included randomized control trials or observational studies evaluating patients on warfarin for secondary prophylaxis of VTE. They also included single arm studies. So these are studies that did not have a comparison group. And then they excluded studies that had less than 10 patients. Now, two physicians reviewed these studies, and if there was disagreement, they resolved that via discussion. Um, overall, the authors actually looked upwards of 4,400 papers, and they included 28 studies. Now, 19 of the 28 were prospective, and nine were retrospective. 20 of the 28 studies were single arm, and they measured the quality of the studies using a tool, and they found out the overall quality of the studies was low. And what was the exposure that the studies were uh, measuring? So the exposure was patients receiving heparin or low molecular weight heparin, for example, noxaparin, versus patients not receiving these agents. Okay, and what were the primary outcomes associated with that exposure? So the primary outcome was the incidence of recurrent VTEs within 30 days after the operation was performed. And some secondary outcomes that they looked at was VTE incidence in high-risk patients. Of note, in high-risk patients, there was never a comparator group because really the concern here is the risk of having a clot in these patients developing. So there was never a comparison arm for high-risk patients. The other secondary outcomes were major bleeding and then major and non-major bleeding. Okay, and what were the main findings of the article? So overall, they found an incidence of clots of 0.7% in patients with bridging and then 0.5% in patients without bridging. Now, intuitively, you might want to compare those numbers, but remember, the authors did not perform a statistical comparison here because of the potential biases in the uh, studies used to conduct this review. And then in high-risk patients um, with bridging, the VTE was 0.8%. Now, Major bleeding occurred in 1.8% of patients with bridging and 0.4% without, and any bleeding occurred in 3.9% of patients with bridging and 0.4% without. Now, usually I will calculate a number needed to treat and a number needed to harm. However, I don't think it's appropriate in this situation because I think number needed to treat and number needed to harm should only be used when there's a direct statistical comparison 
and the underlying quality of the study should be good because the number needed to treat, number needed to harm makes it sound more like an absolute benefit or harm. And in this case, I think that you have to be careful with the conclusions that you make from the study. Okay, so quantitatively higher risk of bleeding, but an inability to compare them truly because there was no comparator arm. Are there any other interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about this study? So first, like what would be the potential biases that could happen um, in these studies that were included? And the biggest one is probably a potential for selection bias. So physicians are going to choose to bridge if they think that patients are at a higher clot risk than the bleed risk. And then when you combine these studies together, it's hard to directly compare them. There's also a potential for information bias due to the observational nature of these studies. And then also there could be a potential for confounders between the study groups. So I agree with that the authors didn't end up statistically comparing these um, different groups together. The results of the study make sense mechanistically. When you stop warfarin, it takes quite a bit of time to wear off. And during that time period, you have some therapeutic effect from the Coumadin overlapped with heparin. And so you have two anticoagulants on board to some degree, and this can increase bleeding risk. So it's not surprising that there is an increased bleeding risk, but the question is, you know, what is the clot risk in these patients? It's really based off the studies that we have, it's hard to determine if patients were chosen for bridging based on the fact that they had a higher clot risk. That's probably what occurred overall. Okay. Are there any other important limitations that you noted about the study that we haven't discussed? So there's lots of different sources for heterogeneity or varied results within the different studies that were combined together. There were many different bridging strategies used, so they weren't all performed in the same manner, and some bridging was just even prophylactic anticoagulation. I would have liked to see a sensitivity analysis done where they only looked at studies with a comparator group. I think that would have been useful. Okay. So then overall, what's your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses from the article? I believe the authors did a good job conducting the review. And the results of the study start to challenge our current bridging practices. I don't think I'm going to change my practice quite yet. However, I think this brings into question if an RCT should be done to look at this question, probably first starting with low to intermediate risk patients comparing bridging to no bridging. So you kind of mentioned this already, but overall, should our listeners and clinicians take this study at face value, or do the limitations of the study kind of question the validity of the findings? I think the limitations cannot be ignored, and further research is definitely needed. Remember, there was potential for selection bias, information bias, and confounding. Summing up what we've talked about thus far, what's your main learning point of this article? So in the future, with more research, we may see that bridging therapy for all patients with a history of VTE is not necessary. 
And I think that it is ethical to look at this with a randomized control trial at this point. And how does this impact your personal practice or how should it impact clinical practice right now? I think it's always important to look at the risks and benefits of using any anticoagulation and thinking about the patient in front of you is something that should still be done. So let's go ahead and jump into the next article. And this article was published by Connolly and colleagues in February in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled the full study report because they had published the partial results earlier of indexin and alpha for bleeding associated with factor 10a inhibitors so sean what was the main message for this article so kind of like your article this was a non-comparative article which was a prospective study at multiple centers using just one group in which they assessed the efficacy of indexin and alpha in patients who experienced major bleeding while taking one of the factor 10A inhibitors. And in the end, patients receiving indexinet alpha experienced greater than a 90% reversal in factor 10A activity, a surrogate laboratory marker, and 82% experienced hemostasis within four hours of administration. However, that factor 10A activity that was reversed in 90% of patients was not actually predictive of hemostasis in patients. Like the trial that you just discussed, the non-comparative nature of the study requires that it be interpreted very carefully when thinking about applying it to clinical practice. All right, very interesting. So why did you choose this article? What makes it important? Um, well, the direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, have drastically altered the prescribing landscape for both AFib and VTE, and we just see them constantly in practice now. There's now a lot of evidence that the DOACs have equivalent efficacy and less overall major bleeding compared to warfarin in these disease states. However, a consistently talked about drawback to DOAC therapy has been the lack of a specific antagonist for patients who do experience major bleeding. However, despite the lack of, of specific reversal agent, there is evidence that patients with major bleeding on DOACs still do have better bleeding-related outcomes compared to patients who bleed on warfarin, despite the fact that warfarin has vitamin K available and other options. Prothrombin complex concentrates and vitamin K, again, are available for warfarin. A couple years ago, idarucizumab or Praxbind was approved for dabigatran. However, there hasn't been anything specifically available for rivaroxaban, apixaban, or redoxaban. So I was excited by the study and the prospect of a potential new reversal agent if it can cause a significant clinical impact on major bleeds in these patients. All right. Well, it sounds like it's definitely filling a hole that is uh, needed for these patients. So what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a prospective single group study, so no comparative group in which patients did not receive therapy or received an alternative therapy that took place at 63 medical centers in North America and Europe that specifically assessed the use of indexin and alpha in patients who presented to emergency departments with major bleeding. Okay, and then so who, what kind of patients were enrolled in the study? Overall, I thought the inclusion criteria were pretty broad. Um, so patients need to, needed to present with acute major bleeding, which um, in the study was defined as bleeding with signs of hemodynamic compromise, loss of hemoglobin of at least two grams per deciliter, or bleeding into critical organ spaces. Patients also needed to have been receiving a pixaban, rivaroxaban, or a doxaban, 
and they actually also included patients who were receiving anoxaparin within 18 hours of presenting to the emergency department. However, they also excluded a lot of patients. They excluded patients who would have required planned surgery within 12 hours of endexinet treatment. They excluded patients who had intracranial hemorrhages with low Glasgow coma scale scores or high hematoma volumes and low expected survival rates. So excluding patients who might have had poor outcomes regardless of administration of a reversal agent. They also excluded patients who had a recent thrombotic event within two weeks before presenting to the emergency department in the study, or use of any specific reversal agent like vitamin K or prothrombin complex concentrate or factor seven um, within seven days prior to the study, trying to eliminate some confounding variables that might have impacted the overall outcome. I'm surprised they excluded planned surgery. I could see maybe a role for this drug. That's true, that's true. Sometimes we need reversal agents most when we need to quickly turn off the anticoagulant in order to perform surgery, so I agree with you. Ultimately, um, the study enrolled 295 patients who ended up receiving andexanet alpha. The majority were receiving either apixaban or rivaroxaban prior to the bleeding episode. The patient population was primarily white, was an older population with an average age of 77 years, and the vast majority, 80%, were receiving anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. Of the actual sites of bleeding that the patients presented with, most, as in 65% of patients, actually presented with intracranial bleeding, which is obviously one of the most severe types of bleeding, and 25% presented with gastrointestinal bleeding. One of the things that I thought was good that the investigators did in designing their study was that the hemostatic endpoints, so assessing if a wound or a bleed has ceased, was performed by an independent adjudication committee who qualitatively assessed hemostatic endpoints. So hemostatic efficacy was defined as excellent if the bleeding ceased within an hour after indexinet and it was considered good if bleeding ceased within one to four hours after receiving the infusion and no additional interventions were required. So what was the intervention? And then I guess you said before that there wasn't a control. So I guess what was the intervention first? <laughs> <laughs> so the intervention again was patients who received andexanet alpha, which is a modified recombinant form of human factor 10A for major bleeding. Like you said, there was no comparator arm. And then what was their main outcome they were looking at? So the investigators actually looked at two co-primary outcomes. The first was incidence of recurrent VTE within 30 days postoperatively. They also looked at patients achieving good or excellent hemostatic efficacy 12 hours after the infusion and change in baseline factor 10A activity following endexinet infusion. So for our listeners that may not know about factor 10A, why would they draw that? So factor 10A activity was looked at specifically because it's considered a surrogate marker uh, for patients receiving factor 10A inhibitors. If you can reverse the inhibition on factor 10A so that factor 10A performs kind of its clotting role as usual mm -hmm. without being in the presence of an antagonist, that would signify that the drug has been appropriately antagonized and its effects have been reversed. Okay, so um, factor 10A may help measure the level of anticoagulation left. Right, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Besides for these primary endpoints, there were a couple secondary outcomes that they looked at as well. One being VTE incidents within 30 days of exposure. So that's always been sort of a, a safety hazard with using reversal agents when a patient requires anticoagulation is kind of procoagulant properties of these medications. 
They also looked at mortality within 30 days of endexinet exposure. And then they looked at the predictive of the validity of hemostasis and factor 10A reduction. Did this reversal in factor 10A actually impact which patients actually stopped bleeding? So what were the main findings of the study? Well, first of all, factor 10A activity was reduced by a factor of about 92% in patients who were receiving either apixaban or rivaroxaban. Good or excellent hemostasis, so reversal of bleed within one to four hours or less than four hours overall, was achieved in 82% of patients. Of the 82%, most of those patients were adjudicated as excellent, meaning that they are bleeding stopped within one hour. After infusion, 10% of patients did experience a thrombotic event within 30 days of infusion. Um, however, there was significant heterogeneity in terms of the clinical presentation when the VTE occurred. Most of these occurred more than two weeks after endexinet infusion, and in those patients uh, whose anticoagulation therapy had been discontinued for that whole time interval. Looking at factor 10A and how it was predictive to attaining hemostasis, there was actually a very poor correlation, meaning that factor 10A reduction may not be a useful marker of endexinet clinical efficacy in clinical practice in the future. Okay, well that sounds like one last lab I have to draw. <laughs> right. Sort of like your study, Chris, no absolute risk difference was available in the study because there was no comparator group, and therefore number needed to treat or number needed to harm values couldn't be calculated. For comparative rates of hemostasis and bleeding, we, although we can't look at a, at a proper comparator group in the study that has the same inclusion and exclusion criteria, we can look at other studies for a rough estimate of efficacy in these two um, outcomes. So for example, in the idericizumab trial for dabigatran, patients with uncontrolled bleeding had a median time to hemostasis of two and a half hours, which is sort of in line with what we just saw with endexnet in this study. Uh, additionally, in a prospective cohort trial of prothrombin complex concentrates for major bleeds in patients taking DOAX, the authors used this same rating system for assessing hemostatic efficacy and found that in that trial as well, cessation of bleeding within one hour and one to four hour was about 80% in that study as well. So although these are different patient populations and we can't say that they're exactly equal, the outcomes sort of match the other studies that are out there. So PCC may be another option for reversing these agents. Right, so because they're, they're not directly compared, we can't say for sure, but looking at the studies separately, it seems like their outcomes were pretty similar. Okay, are there any other interesting points or observations that you wanted to make? For one, although the trial did include patients who were also taking anoxaparin and adoxaban, these patients were very underrepresented. Anoxaparin also works through antagonism of factor 10A, but it also has some effect at factor two. It's also already partially reversed by the known heparin antagonist protamine. In total, only 16 patients were on anoxaparin in this study. However, factor 10A activity for patients on anoxaparin was lowered less than that of patients who were receiving apixaban or rivaroxaban. As there was no statistical analysis, it's really hard to say whether or not that's significant. In addition, there were so few patients. Adoxaban also was only taken by four patients, so the results that the authors saw really can't be extrapolated to patients receiving adoxaban. The other thing that caught my eye was that looking at the factor 10A reversal trends throughout the study period, 
Factor 10A activity was reduced by 90% following infusion for patients on apixaban and rivaroxaban. However, four to eight hours after infusion, so checking the factor 10A level a little bit later, these patients experienced a rebound in factor 10A activity up to 30 to 50% of their baseline levels. And this kind of raises the question of whether repeat doses of endexinet alpha may be needed in clinical practice. So are there any important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed? Uh, I think, like you brought up, prothrombin complex concentrates are, are already currently used in practice for treatment of major bleeding induced by the direct oral anticoagulants, and these agents have hemostatic efficacy results similar to those the authors found in this study. So the study's authors are currently designing a comparative study for indexant alpha compared to PCCs or other agents, which can kind of answer some of the limitations brought upon by a study designed with only a single arm. Well, that's promising. So there's going to be another study with a comparator arm that's coming out. Right. So they're enrolling currently. Um, although what the comparator arm is exactly, I'm not sure. Okay, great. So can you uh, summarize the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the study? Sure. So on the strength side, I think the study was able to enroll a large cohort of patients presenting with major bleeding, especially intracranial bleeding, which is one of those disease states that we're most concerned with, who were previously on DOAC therapy. And they pre presented useful evidence on the efficacy of endexinet in terms of this adjudicated hemostatic score as well as the surrogate factor 10A activity. However, the lack of a comparator group and the poor predictive correlation between factor 10A activity and cessation of bleeding make the results really difficult to interpret and apply to current practice. So overall, do you think the study should be taken at face value or is there significant limitations? At the moment, I think the single arm limitation is too serious to take the study at face value, especially with what we discussed with alternative agents. Further research focused on comparative efficacy between indexinet alpha and current standards of care is needed before we start stocking indexinet alpha in every emergency department, I think. Okay, so what is your main learning point or take-home point for this article? I think the take-home point is that indexinet alpha may be useful in patients who present with major bleeding on DOAC therapy, although more research is obviously required specifically for the use of indexinet in patients presenting with major bleeds on the noxaparin and adoxaban who were underrepresented. And how is this going to affect your day-to-day -day practice? Overall, I think the study strengthens the argument of indexant alpha in patients with major bleeding. However, on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't think it really does impact practice at this point. I think waiting for the outcomes of the prospective comparative study to better assess its efficacy and potential role might impact practice later on. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. So let's go ahead and move on to the favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. And so there are very few interventions that can prevent delirium in the ICU. And I was excited to see a recent study published in pharmacotherapy that looked at the effectiveness of melatonin and the prevention of ICU delirium. And what really caught my eye was the size of the difference between the groups. And that was a difference, an absolute difference of 17%. So a number needed to treat somewhere around five or six. However, the study was observational and did have some limitations, but it does seem to highlight maybe some future options for the prevention of ICU delirium. I've actually seen an increased use of melatonin at our hospital over the past few years, and I'm 
curious if this will change the incidence of the amount of delirium that I see. That's interesting. From my end, I went towards a more non-fictional piece or, or a novel. With more and more medical information being published every day, it can seem impossible to try to remain up to date on evidence-based medicine, which is why podcasts like this are nice. It's also difficult for students to learn kind of the basics of medicine, pharmacology, and therapeutics in such a rapidly changing environment. So I recently finished a book on the modern state of human memory. It was called Moonwalking with Einstein. And it's a non-fictional piece about a journalist who goes from being an amused spectator at the U.S. Memory Championship to being the actual winner of that championship just one year later. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> in it, he explores how human beings in the modern times have offloaded a great portion of the data that we used to remember in our heads all day in favor of looking up things quickly on the internet. So there's a lot of discussion about ancient mnemonic devices that could actually still be useful today. So a lot of institutions are employing the fast hug mnemonic in the ICU to remember the specific things to look at in every patient, make sure they're looking at the full clinical picture, or fast symptoms of stroke we tell patients to look out for. I think it would be interesting if we could do more in terms of thinking of creative ways to instill knowledge in our patients, practitioners, and learners by making some of this medical information more colorful, diverse, and memorable. All right, well, that's fascinating. What would we do without Google? <laughs> I don't know. Suffer. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Have a good night. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airways. You never know what's in store until you tune in.